Book Five, Chapter Ten, Part Two, of On the Education of an Orator by Quintilian, translated by H. E. Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten, Part Two. In a similar way, division is valuable both for proof and refutation. For proof, it is sometimes enough to establish one thing: to be a citizen, a man must either have been born or made such. For refutation both points must be disproved he was neither born nor made a citizen this may be done in many ways and constitutes a form of argument by illumination whereby we show sometimes that the whole is false sometimes that only that which remains after the process of illumination is true an example of the first of these two cases would be you say that you lent him money either you possessed it yourself received it from another found it or stole it if you did not possess it receive it from another find or steal it you did not lend it to him the residue after elimination is shown to be true as follows this slave whom you claim was either born in your house or bought or given you or left you by will or captured from the enemy or belongs to another by the elimination of the previous suppositions he is shown to belong to another this form of argument is risky, and must be employed with care. For if, in setting forth the alternatives, we chance to omit one, our whole case, and our audience will be moved to laughter. It is safer to do what Cicero does in the Procaecina, when he asks, If this is not the point at issue, what is? For, thus, all other points are eliminated at one swoop. Or again, Two contrary propositions may be advanced, either of which, if established, would suffice to prove the case. Take the following example from Cicero. There can be no one so hostile to Cluentius as not to grant me one thing. If it be a fact that the verdict then given was the result of bribery, the bribes must have proceeded either from Habitus or Opianicus. If I show that they did not proceed from Habitus, I prove that they proceeded from Opianicus. If I demonstrate that they were given by Opianicus, I clear habitus. Or we may give our opponent the choice between two alternatives, of which one must necessarily be true, and, as a result, whichever he chooses, he will damage his case. Cicero does this in the Proopio. Was the weapon snatched from his hands when he had attacked Cotta, or when he was trying to commit suicide? and in the Proareno. You have a choice between two alternatives. Either you must show that the choice of this route by Varenus was due to chance, or that it was the result of this man's persuasion and inducement. He then shows that either admission tells against his opponent. Sometimes again, two propositions are stated of such a character that the admission of either involves the same conclusion, as in the sentence, we must philosophize, even though we ought not, or, as in the common dilemma, what is the use of a figure if its meaning is clear, and what is its use if it is unintelligible? Or, he who is capable of enduring pain will lie if tortured, and so will he who cannot endure pain. As there are three divisions of time, so the orders of events fall into three stages. For everything has a beginning, growth, and consummation, as, for instance, a quarrel, blows, murder. Thus arise arguments, which lend each other mutual support. 
for the conclusion is inferred from the beginning, as in the following case. I cannot expect a purple-striped toga when I see that the beginning of the web is black. Or the beginning may be inferred from the conclusion. For instance, the fact that Sulla resigned the dictatorship is an argument that Sulla did not take up arms with the intention of establishing a tyranny. Similarly, from the growth of a situation, we may infer either its beginning or its end, not only in questions of fact, but as regards points of equity, such as whether the conclusion is referable to the beginning, that is, should the man that began the quarrel be regarded as guilty of the bloodshed with which it ended? Arguments are also drawn from similarities. If self-control is a virtue, abstinence is also a virtue. If a guardian should be required to be faithful to his trust, so should an agent. To this class belongs the type of argument called epagoge by the Greeks, induction by Cicero. Or arguments may be drawn from unlikes. It does not follow that if joy is a good thing, pleasure also is a good thing. It does not follow that what applies to the case of a woman applies also to the case of a ward. Or from contraries, frugality is a good thing, since luxury is an evil thing. If he who does harm unwittingly deserves pardon, he who does good unwittingly does not deserve a reward. Or from contradictions. He who is wise is not a fool. Or from consequences, necessary or probable. If justice is a good thing, we must give right judgment. If breach of faith is a bad thing, we must not deceive. And such arguments may also be reversed. Similar to these are the following arguments, which must, therefore, be classed under the same head, since it is to this that they naturally belong. A man has not lost what he never had. A man does not wittingly injure him whom he loves. If one man has appointed another as his heir, he regarded, still regards, and will continue to regard him with affection. However, such arguments being incontrovertible, are of the nature of absolute indications. These, however, I call consequent, or acoluta. Goodness, for instance, is consequent on wisdom, while, in regard to things which merely have taken place afterwards, or will take place, I use the term insequent, or parepomena, though I do not regard the question of terminology as important. Give them any name you please, as long as the meaning is clear, and it is shown that the one depends on time, the other on the nature of things. I have therefore no hesitation in calling the following forms of argument also consequential, although they argue from the past to the future. Some, however, divide them into two classes, those concerned with action, as in the proopio, how could he detain, against their will, those whom he was unable to take to the province against their will? And those concerned with time, as in the variance. If the 1st of January puts an end to the authority of the preacher's edict, why should the commencement of its authority not likewise date from the 1st of January? Both these instances are of such a nature that the argument is reversible for it is a necessary consequence that those who could not be taken to the province against their will could not be retained against their will. So, too, I feel clear that we should rank as consequential arguments those derived from facts 
which lend each other mutual support, and are by some regarded as forming a separate kind of argument, which they call acton pros alela, arguments from things mutually related, while Cicero styles them arguments drawn from things to which the same line of reasoning applies. Take the following example. If it is honorable for the Rhodians to let out their harbor dues, it is honorable likewise for Hermocrian to take the contract. Or, what it is honorable to learn, it is also honorable to teach. Such also is the fine sentence of Domitius Affer, which has the same effect, though it is not identical in form. I accused, you condemned. Arguments which prove the same thing from opposites are also mutually consequential. For instance, we may argue that he who says that the world was created thereby implies that it is suffering decay, since this is the property of all created things. There is another, very similar form of argument, which consists in the inference of facts from their efficient causes, or the reverse, a process known as argument from causes. The conclusion is sometimes necessary, sometimes generally without being necessarily true. For instance, a body casts a shadow in the light, and the shadow, wherever it falls, indicates the presence of a body. There are other conclusions which, as I have said, are not necessary, whether as regards both cause and effect, or only one of the two. For instance, the sun colors the skin, but not every one that is colored receives that color from the sun. A journey makes the traveler dusty, but every journey does not produce dust, nor is every one that is dusty just come from a journey. As examples of necessary conclusions, on the other hand, I may cite the following. If wisdom makes a man good, a good man must needs be wise. And again, it is the part of a good man to act honorably, of a bad man to act dishonorably. Or, those who act honorably are considered good, those who act dishonorably are considered bad men. In these cases, the conclusion is correct. On the other hand, though exercise generally makes the body robust, not everyone who is robust is given to exercise, nor is everyone that is addicted to exercise robust. Nor again, because courage prevents our fearing death, is every man who has no fear of death to be regarded as a brave man, nor is the sun useless to man because it sometimes gives him a headache. Arguments such as the following belong, in the main, to the hortative department of oratory. Virtue brings renown, therefore it should be pursued. But the pursuit of pleasure brings ill repute, therefore it should be shunned. But the warning that we should not necessarily search for the originating cause is just. An example of such error is provided by the speech of Medea, beginning, Ha! Would that never there in Pelion's grove, as though her misery or guilt were due to the fact that there the beams of fur had fallen to the ground. Or I might cite the words addressed by Philoctetes to Paris. Hadst thou been other than thou art, then I had ne'er been plunged in woe. By tracing back causes on lines such as these, we may arrive anywhere. 
but for the fact that Cicero has done so, I should regard it as absurd to add to these what is styled the conjugate argument, such as those who perform a just act act justly, a self-evident fact requiring no proof. Or again, every man has a common right to send his cattle to graze in a common pasture. Some call these arguments derived from causes or efficients, by the Greek name ekbases, that is, results. For, in such cases, the only point considered is how one thing results from another. Those arguments which prove the lesser from the greater, the greater from the less, or equals from equals, are styled apposite or comparative. A conjecture as to a fact is confirmed by argument from something greater in the following sentence. If a man commits sacrilege, he will also commit theft. From something less, in a sentence such as, he who lies easily and openly will commit perjury. From something equal, in a sentence such as, he who has taken a bribe to give a false verdict will take a bribe to give false witness. Points of law may be proved in a similar manner, from something greater, as in the sentence, if it is lawful to kill an adulterer, it is lawful to scourge him. From something less, if it is lawful to kill a man attempting theft by night, how much more lawful it is to kill one who attempts robbery with violence. From something equal, the penalty which is just in the case of parricide is also just in the case of matricide. In all these cases, we follow the syllogistic method. The following type of argument, on the other hand, is more serviceable in questions turning on definition or quality. If strength is good for the body, health is no less good. If theft is a crime, sacrilege is a greater crime. If abstinence is a virtue, so is self-control. If the world is governed by providence, the state also requires a government. If a house cannot be built without a plan, what of a whole city? If naval stores require careful supervision, so also do arms. I am content to treat this type of argument as a genus without going further. Others, however, divide it into species. For we may argue from several things to one, or from one thing to several. Hence, arguments such as, what has happened once may happen often. We may also argue from a part to the whole, from genus to species, from that which contains to that which is contained, from the difficult to the easy, from the remote to the near, and similarly from the opposites of all these to their opposites. Now, all these arguments deal with the greater or the less, or else with things that are equal, and if we follow up such fine distinctions, there will be no limit to our division into species. For the comparison of things is infinite. Things may be more pleasant, more serious, more necessary, more honorable, more useful. I say no more for fear of falling into that very garrulity which I deprecate. The number of examples of these arguments which I might quote is likewise infinite, but I will only deal with a very few. As an example of argument from something greater, take the following example from the Prokaikina. Shall we suppose that that which alarms whole armies cause no alarm to a peaceful company of lawyers? As an instance of argument from something easier, take this passage from the speech against Claudius and Curio. Consider 
whether it would have been easy for you to secure the praetorship, when he in whose favor you withdrew failed to secure election. The following provides an example of argument from something more difficult. I beg you, Tubero, to remark that I, who do not hesitate to speak of my own deed, venture to speak of that performed by Ligarius. And again, has not Ligarius reason for hope when I am permitted to intercede with you for another? For an argument drawn from something less, take this passage from the Procaecina. Really, is the knowledge that the men were armed sufficient to prove that violence was offered, and the fact that he fell into their hands insufficient? Well, then, to give a brief summary of the whole question, arguments are drawn from persons, causes, place, and time, which latter we have divided into preceding, contemporary, and subsequent, from resources, under which we include instruments, from manner, that is, how a thing has been done, from definition, genus, species, difference, property, elimination, division, beginnings, increase, consummation, likes, unlikes, contradictions, consequence, efficiency, effects, results, and comparison, which is subdivided into several species. I think I should also add that arguments are drawn not merely from admitted facts, but from fictitious suppositions, which the Greek style katipotesin, and that this latter type of argument falls into all the same divisions as those which I have mentioned above, since there may be as many species of fictitious arguments as there are of true arguments. When I speak of fictitious arguments, I mean the proposition of something which, if true, would either solve a problem or contribute to its solution, and secondly, the demonstration of the similarity of our hypotheses to the case under consideration. To make this the more readily intelligible to youths who have not yet left school, I will first of all illustrate it by examples of a kind familiar to the young. There is a law to the effect that the man who refuses to support his parents is liable to imprisonment. A certain man fails to support his parents and nonetheless objects to going to prison. He advances the hypothesis that he would be exempt from such a penalty if he were a soldier, an infant, or if he were absent from home on the service of the state. Again, in the case of where a hero is allowed to choose his reward, we might introduce the hypothesis of his desiring to make himself a tyrant, or to overthrow the temples of the gods. Such arguments are specially useful when we are arguing against the letter of the law, and are thus employed by Cicero in the Procaecina. The interdict contains the words, whence you or your household or your agent had driven him. If your steward alone had driven me out, it would not, I suppose, be your household, but a member of your household that had driven me out. If indeed you owned no slave except the one who drove me out, you would cry, if I possess a household at all, I admit that my household drove you out. Many other examples might be quoted from the same work, but fictitious suppositions are also exceedingly useful when we are concerned with the quality of an act. If Catiline should try this case assisted by a jury composed of those scoundrels whom he led out with him, he would condemn Lucius Morena. 
It is useful also for amplification. If this had happened to you during dinner, in the midst of your deportations, or again, if the state could speak. Such, in the main, are the usual topics of proof as specified by teachers of rhetoric. But it is not sufficient to classify them generically in our instructions, since from each of them there arises an infinite number of arguments, while it is, in the very nature of things, impossible to deal with all their individual species. Those who have attempted to perform this latter task have exposed themselves in equal degree to two disadvantages, saying too much, and yet failing to cover the whole ground. Consequently, the majority of students, finding themselves lost in an inextricable maze, have abandoned all individual effort, including even that which their own wits might have placed within their power, as though they were fettered by certain rigid laws, and keeping their eyes fixed upon their master, have ceased to follow the guidance of nature. But as it is not in itself sufficient to know that all proofs are drawn either from persons or things, because each of these groups is subdivided into a number of different heads, so he who has learned that arguments must be drawn from antecedent, contemporary, or subsequent facts will not be sufficiently instructed in the knowledge of the method of handling arguments to understand what arguments are to be drawn from the circumstances of each particular case, especially as the majority of proofs are to be found in the special circumstances of individual cases, and have no connection with any other dispute, and therefore, while they are the strongest, are also the least obvious, since, whereas we derive what is common to all cases from general rules, we have to discover for ourselves whatever is peculiar to the case which we have in hand. This type of argument may reasonably be described as drawn from circumstances, there being no other word to express the Greek peristasis, or from those things which are peculiar to any given case. For instance, in the case of the priest who, having committed adultery, desired to save his own life by means of the law, which gave him the power of saving one life, the appropriate argument to employ against him would run as follows. You would save more than one guilty person, since, if you were discharged, it would not be lawful to put the adulteress to death. For such an argument follows from the law, forbidding the execution of the adulteress apart from the adulterer. Again, take the case falling under the law which lays down that bankers may pay only half of what they owe, while permitted to recover the whole of what they are owed. One banker requires payment of the whole sum owed him by another banker. The appropriate argument supplied by the subject to the creditor is that there was special reason for the insertion of the clause, sanctioning the recovery of the whole of a debt by a banker, since there was no need of such a law as against others, inasmuch as all have the right to recover the whole of a debt from any save a banker. But while some fresh considerations are bound to present themselves in every kind of subject, this is more especially the case in questions turning on the letter of the law, since not merely individual words, but still more whole phrases are frequently ambiguous. And these considerations must vary, according to the complexity of laws and other documents, whether they are in agreement or contradictory, since fact throws light on fact and law on law, 
as in the following argument. I owed you no money. You never summoned me for debt. You took no interest from me. Nay, you actually borrowed money from me. It is laid down by law that he who refuses to defend his father when accused of treason thereby loses his right to inherit. A son denies that he is liable to this penalty unless his father is acquitted. How does he support this contention? There is another law to the effect that a man found guilty of treason shall be banished and his advocate with him. Cicero in the Procluentio says that Publius Popilius and Tiberius Gutta were not condemned for receiving bribes to give a false verdict, but for attempting to bribe a jury. What is his argument in support of this view? That their accusers, who were themselves found guilty of bribing the jury, were restored, in accordance with law, after winning their case. But the consideration as to what argument should be put forward requires no less care than the consideration of the manner in which we are to prove that which we have put forward. Indeed, in this connection, invention, if not the most important, is certainly the first consideration. For, just as weapons are superfluous for one who does not know what his target is, so, too, arguments are useless, unless you see in advance to what they are to be applied. This is a task for which no formal rules can be laid down. Consequently, though a number of orators who have studied the same rules will use similar kinds of arguments, one will discover a greater number of arguments to suit his case than another. Let us take as an example a controversial theme involving problems that have little in common with other cases. When Alexander destroyed Thebes, he found documents showing that the Thebans had lent a hundred talents to the Thessalians, these documents he presented to the Thessalians as a reward for the assistance they had given him in the campaign. Subsequently, the Thebans, after the restoration of their city by Cassander, demanded that the Thessalians should repay the money. The case is tried before the Amphictyonic Council. It is admitted that the Thebans lent the money and were not repaid. The whole dispute turns on the allegation that Alexander had excused the Thessalians from payment of the debt. It is also admitted that the Thessalians had received no money from Alexander. The question is, therefore, whether this gift is equivalent to his having given them money. What use will formal topics of argument be in such a case, unless I first convince myself that the gift of Alexander made no difference? that he had not the power to make it, and that he did not make it. The opening of the Thebans plea presents no difficulty, and is likely to win the approval of the judges, since they are seeking to recover by right what was taken from them by force. But out of this point arises a violent controversy as to the right of war, since the Thessalians urge that kingdoms and peoples and the frontiers of nations and cities depend upon these rights. To meet this argument, it is necessary to discover in what respect this case differs from others which are concerned with property that has fallen into the hands of the victor. The difficulty, moreover, lies not so much in the proof as in the way it should be put forward. We may begin by stating that the rights of war do not hold good in any matter which can be brought before a court of justice, 
and that what is taken by force of arms can only be retained by force of arms, and consequently, wherever the rights of war holds good, there is no room for the functions of a judge, while, on the contrary, where the functions of the judge come into play, the rights of war cease to have any force. The reason why it is necessary to discover this principle is to enable us to bring the following argument into play, that prisoners of war are free on returning to their native land, just because the gains of war cannot be retained except by the exercise of the same violence by which they were acquired. Another peculiar feature of the case is that it is tried before the Amphictyonic Council, and you will remember that we have to employ different methods in pleading a case before the centumviral court and before an arbitrator, though the problems of the cases may be identical. Secondly, we may urge that the right to refuse payment could not have been conferred by the victor, because he possesses only what he holds, but a right, being incorporeal, cannot be grasped by the hand. It is more difficult to discover this principle than, once discovered, to defend it with arguments, such as that the position of an heir and a conqueror are fundamentally different, since right passes to the one and property to the other. It is further an argument peculiar to the subject matter of the case that the right over a public debt could not have passed to the victor, because the repayment of a sum of money lent by a whole people is due to them all, and as long as any single one of them survives, he is creditor for the whole amount. But the Thebans were never all of them to a man in Alexander's power. The force of this argument resides in the fact that it is not based on any external support, but holds good in itself. Proceeding to the third line of argument, we may note that the first portion of it is of a more ordinary type, namely that the right to repayment is not based on the actual document, a plea which can be supported by many arguments. Doubt may also be thrown on Alexander's purpose. Did he intend to honor them or to trick them? Another argument peculiar to the subject, indeed it practically introduces a new discussion, is that the Thebans may be regarded as having, in virtue of their restoration, recovered the right, even though it be admitted that they had lost it. Again, Cassandra's purpose may be discussed, but, as the case is being pleaded before the Amphictyonic Council, we shall find that the most powerful plea that can be urged is that of equity. I make these remarks, not because I think that a knowledge of the places from which arguments may be derived is useless, had I thought so, I should have passed them by. But to prevent those who have learned these rules from neglecting other considerations, and regarding themselves as having a perfect and absolute knowledge of the whole subject, and to make them realize that, unless they acquire a thorough knowledge of the remaining points which I am about to discuss, they will be the possessors of what I can only call a dumb science. For the discovery of arguments was not the result of the publication of textbooks, but every kind of argument was put forward before any rules were laid down, and it was only later that writers of rhetoric noted them and collected them for publication. A proof of this is the fact that the examples which they use are old and quoted from the orators, while they themselves discover nothing new, or that has not been said before. The creators of the art were therefore the orators, though we owe a debt of gratitude also 
to those who have given us a shortcut to knowledge. For thanks to them, the arguments discovered by the genius of earlier orators have not got to be hunted down and noted in detail. But this does not suffice to make an orator any more than it suffices to learn the art of gymnastic in school. The body must be assisted by continual practice, self-control, diet, and above all by nature. On the other hand, none of these are sufficient in themselves without the aid of art. I would also have students of oratory consider that all the forms of argument which I have just set forth cannot be found in every case, and that when the subject on which we have to speak has been propounded, it is no use considering each separate type of argument, and knocking at the door of each with a view to discovering whether they may chance to serve to prove our point, except while we are in the position of mere learners, without any knowledge of actual practice. Such a process merely retards the process of speaking to an incalculable extent, if it is always necessary for us to try each single argument, and thus learn by experiment what is apt and suitable to our case. In fact, I am not sure that it will not be an actual obstacle to progress, unless a certain innate penetration and a power of rapid divination, seconded by study, lead us straight to the arguments which suit our case. For just as the melody of the voice is most pleasing when accompanied by the lyre, yet, if the musician's hand be slow, and, unless he first look at the strings and take their measure, hesitate as to which strings match the several notes of the voice, it would be better that he should content himself with the natural music of the voice unaccompanied by any instrument. Even so, our theory of speaking must be adapted, and, like the lyre, attuned to such rules as these. But it is only by constant practice that we can secure that, just as the hands of the musician, even though his eyes be turned elsewhere, produce bass, treble, or intermediate tones by force of habit, so the thought of the orator should suffer no delay owing to the variety and number of possible arguments but that the latter should present themselves uncalled, and, just as letters and syllables require no thought on the part of a writer, so arguments should spontaneously follow the thought of the orator. End of section 10